Welcome to Skim This. The first week of January is always a tough week to go back to work. And no one feels that more than House Republicans, who've been locked in a tense battle over who should be the Speaker of the House. We're skimming why the GOP can't seem to get their house in order, plus everything else you need to know about the 118th session of Congress. Also on the show, we've got an update on NFL player Damar Hamlin, the heavy storms hitting California, and predictions about what to expect in 2023. I think in retrospect, the pandemic marked the end of a period of stability in quite a lot of ways. And to wrap things up, we're focusing on the one New Year's resolution we can all get behind, being happier, which surprisingly starts with talking to strangers. Stay tuned, because we're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. The 118th Congress officially started on Tuesday. And so far, lawmakers can't seem to get their house in order. No persons having received a majority of the whole number of votes cast by surname. A speaker has not been elected. Between a fight over the speakership and an elected representative's sketchy past, there was a lot of drama during the first week back. So today, we're breaking down three things you need to know about Congress's not-so-hot start to the new year. First, let's talk about the unprecedented fight over who should be the Speaker of the House. I rise today to nominate the gentleman from California, Kevin McCarthy, as Speaker of the House to lead America's new Republican majority. Republican Representative Kevin McCarthy who's been the House Minority Leader since 2014, tried not once, not twice, but nine times to get the gavel. And it's the first time in over 100 years that we've seen this level of chaos for the speakership. A speaker has not been elected. Usually, this is a one-ballot kind of process. So what happened? Well, a group of 20 GOP politicians didn't think McCarthy made enough concessions in favor of the right wing of the party. They also argue that Republicans only took the majority in the House by a slim margin, despite all signs pointing to a red wave before the midterms. And they say McCarthy was kind of responsible for that failure. We want to turn the page. We want new leadership. We want fresh faces and new ideas. This town desperately needs change. And if it's a few of us who have to stand in the breach to force it, we are willing to do so for as long as it takes. And when there's no speaker, Congress can't actually do anything, like swear in new members or dole out committee assignments. So this takes Congress not being able to get anything done to a whole new level. As of the time we publish this, the House still hasn't found its speaker. And it's hard to say what will happen, or whether McCarthy will eventually get the job. This disagreement amongst GOP lawmakers shows just how fractured the Republican Party is ideologically. And that it's not just a House divided between the GOP and the Dems, but Republicans can't show a united front within their own party. And that could have major implications for how committees are run, 
and could lead to potential internal fights over legislation. But luckily for McCarthy, there was another GOP politician in the headlines this week, for all the wrong reasons. Which is also our second thing to know. Congressman-elect George Santos actually headed to Washington this week. In case you missed it over the break, Santos is an elected GOP representative from Long Island. He's set to be sworn in this week, even though he confessed to falsifying qualifications on his resume. If I disappointed anyone by resume embellishments, I'm sorry. You may have seen some of these crazy headlines on the news or in your group chat. But basically, Santos lied about working at two different Wall Street firms, about attending college in New York, and about having a college degree at all. Santos also shared some other eyebrow-raising stories on the campaign trail. He's claimed he's both Jewish and Catholic, that four of his employees died in the 2016 Pulse nightclub shooting, that his home was vandalized in 2021, and that his mom died during 9-11. Investigative reporting from the New York Times and other outlets have found that all these stories appear to be completely made up. Talk about lying on your resume. But can that prevent him from serving in office? Well, it's TBD. Santos is now under scrutiny by law enforcement in multiple countries. In the U.S., federal and local prosecutors are investigating whether or not he committed a crime by lying. While in Brazil, officials announced this week they're reopening a 2008 check fraud case that Santos is involved in. And on top of all of this, Santos's shady campaign finance moves are also raising red flags, including a mysterious six-figure personal loan he made to his own campaign last year, which raised some eyebrows since Santos has been named in multiple eviction and debt collection cases. It's too soon to say what those investigations will find. But in the meantime, Santos's colleagues and constituents have called for his resignation. Finally, let's get to the third thing you need to know about the 118th Congress. What they might actually get done in the next two years. A GOP-controlled House means Republicans now have oversight power. GOP leaders have said they're planning to investigate the Biden administration for things like the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the use of pandemic funding. Republican House members have also expressed interest in using oversight powers to investigate the FBI, Hunter Biden, and the January 6th committee. We could also see GOP lawmakers pursuing legislation on border security, immigration policies, and spending cuts, including on the war in Ukraine. But given how long it's taken Republicans to pick a speaker, it might be a minute before we're talking bills. Not to mention, Democrats still control the Senate, and Biden's still in the White House. So any GOP legislation in the House is unlikely to make its way to the president's desk, at least for now. Want us to break down another question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. Let's get to some other headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. 
First, we're starting with an update on NFL player Damar Hamlin. So this is the part of football no one wants to see. The reaction of the players on the field waving medical teams over said it all about how serious this was. Buffalo Bills safety Damar Hamlin remains critically ill in the hospital after he went into cardiac arrest during the Bills-Bengals game on Monday night. This is where Joe Burrow is so good. And now another Bills player is down. Just minutes after kickoff, Hamlin took a hard hit to his head and torso during a tackle and collapsed to the ground. Players and fans watched in shock while the NFL initially ruled the game should continue. But that didn't happen when players headed back to the locker rooms and the league announced they'd postpone. Hamlin was taken to the University of Cincinnati Medical Center, and this incident stunned fans across the country. We've seen players go down with head injuries before and see them stay down for a little while, get back up, give the thumbs up. And that's all we were all hoping for. On Wednesday, a representative for Hamlin said he's moving in a positive direction and said doctors are pleased with his progress, but that he still has a long journey to go. Today, we learned Hamlin is on a ventilator and is able to communicate in writing. The Bills resumed practice on Wednesday, and the NFL has also said all regularly scheduled games in the next week will continue as planned. But for many, it's hard to return to business as usual. NFL players' health and safety has been a talker for years, and this season has brought to light more concerns. Earlier in the season, the Miami Dolphins and the NFL were under fire after Dolphins QB Tua Tagovailoa went back on the field after suffering multiple head injuries in back-to-back games. And just this week, Indianapolis Colts QB Nick Foles convulsed on the field after a tackle. And looking beyond this season, more than 300 former NFL players have been diagnosed with CTE, a degenerative brain disease linked to repeated blows to the head. It's an issue the league has avoided talking about and didn't even acknowledge until 2016. Even though the NFL has since poured tens of millions of dollars into concussion and helmet research, many worry it's not enough. Not to mention, all of these health threats are disproportionately being felt by people of color, as the majority of players are Black. And what happened to Hamlin is another example of how America's most popular game leaves its players with life-altering and life-threatening injuries. And it's renewed calls for the NFL to be held accountable to a higher standard of safety and respect for players' health. All right, for our next headline, let's take a look at a major change coming to a pharmacy near you. The FDA has finalized a rule change that broadens availability of abortion pills. On Tuesday, the FDA said certified pharmacies can now provide abortion pills, a move that could significantly expand abortion access across the country. Previously, you could only receive the pills in person at a medical clinic, office, or hospital. Abortion pills like mifepristone have been authorized by the FDA to terminate pregnancies up to 10 weeks, and they're used in more than half of abortions in the U.S. With this new regulation change, patients will need a prescription to access the pills, 
but pharmacies can decide whether to provide them in person or through the mail. And following the FDA's announcement, major pharmacies, including CVS and Walgreens, said they plan to start offering the pills. Still, as more states move to ban or restrict abortion, pharmacies will need to comply with the laws of the state they're in. Meaning, it's unlikely this move will have much of an impact in states where abortion is already banned. And it's also likely more states will move to restrict access to abortion in the future, leaving pharmacies to navigate the political landmines. Zooming out, medication abortion had already become the focus of the legal and political fight over abortion access since Roe v. Wade was overturned. And this latest decision from the FDA could face legal challenges in the months to come. For our next headline, let's take a look at what's going on on the West Coast. State of emergency in California, where tens of millions are under flood and wind alerts as yet another major storm, a bomb cyclone, as forecasters describe it, threatens the state. Over the past week, California has been hit by back-to-back winter storms. The latest knocked out power for hundreds of thousands of people as of Thursday morning, as heavy rain and high winds swept the region. All this repeated rainfall we've seen this week on the West Coast has kept the ground wet. And that means there's nowhere for new rain to get absorbed, which drastically increases the likelihood of mudslides and flooding. And areas damaged by wildfires over the past few years are also particularly vulnerable. So far, California Governor Gavin Newsom has already declared a state of emergency, and authorities have reported two deaths related to the storms. All right, our final headline is more of a PSA. After a disastrous holiday travel meltdown, Southwest Airlines appears to be back on track. The airline CEO apologizing and promising to reimburse frustrated passengers. That's right. If you got caught in the Southwest hot mess travel express over the holidays, we've got some good-ish news. The airline has apologized for canceling over 15,000 flights this holiday season and is offering 25,000 reward points to those customers which translates to about $300 in value. The CEO also said the points never expire and don't have blackout dates. So if you were unlucky enough to be stuck in an airport for more than three hours waiting for a Southwest flight between December 24th and January 2nd, check your email for an apology and more importantly, those points. At the start of every year, we like to take some time to think about what's to come in the next 12 months. For ourselves, for our friends and family, but also for the world. Last year, we heard whispers of recessions, wars, and revolutions. Some of those happened, and some didn't. So we wanted to know what exactly is in store for 2023. To help us read the tea leaves, we spoke to someone whose actual job it is to make these kinds of predictions. Meet Tom Standage, the deputy editor of The Economist. He puts together the magazine's World Ahead issue, which forecasts the global trends for the years to come. All right, let's give him a call. 
So I read The World Ahead Issue every single year, and I'm so excited to talk to you because I'm curious first how you even go about compiling an issue like this, because I think if you told me, Alex, you have to sit down and predict everything that's going to happen next year, I'd be like, that's pretty daunting. I don't know where to start. So I'm just curious what that process is like. Sure. It's a process that starts in May. And it starts with a sort of brainstorm among the editorial staff at The Economist. And for many years, but obviously not for the past couple of years, this was a, a tea that would happen on a Monday afternoon. It's very English. Very English. There would be lots of tea and coffee and lots of sticky buns. And then everyone would have a massive kind of sugar rush, caffeine rush and come up with, well, you know, here are some of the things I think we should be keeping an eye on for the, for the coming year. And it's not just the themes. In some cases, people would say, oh, this is definitely happening next year, because there are some things that you know are, are going to happen, like the Olympics or an election. But it's also the people to watch, because the second place that we look for ideas is the guest writers that we have. And so we have people from politics, business, science and the arts. And then the other sources are rather more technical, I suppose. We have our colleagues at the Economist Intelligence Unit, and they do a supplement in the middle of the world ahead with forecasts for particular industries and countries. And then we have the super forecasters. And this is the team that won the US government's geopolitical forecasting contest two years in a row. So we're very lucky that they produce a handful of forecasts for us every year. And so we've got basically the hunches of journalists. We've got the views of outsiders. We've got the bean counters at the EIU. And then we've got the super forecasters as well. And if you could summarize those trends or forces that you've predicted will happen in 2023, what would you generalize or bucket them into? I feel like for me, when I read it, coming out of two years of the pandemic, the one thing that really stood out to me was there's kind of no normal or no stability anymore. That's exactly right. The main force obviously driving what was happening around the world for, for a couple of years there was the pandemic. It's been more than two and a half years since the first reported COVID cases. And that was story number one. And now the war in Ukraine has, has become the most significant driving factor. Millions of lives have been disrupted by the war. In the because it affects so many things. But I think more generally, if you look back, we had a period that some people have called a holiday from history. People have given it different names. But the past couple of decades, and some people would even go back a bit further, actually, into the late 20th century, has actually, in retrospect, been a period of relative stability. So it's most obvious in economics, where we had very low interest rates and very low inflation for a very long time. But we also didn't have major wars. We didn't have world powers engaged in you know, the level that we're now seeing in conflict. And so that was something that we all sort of were worried about in the late, you know, I grew up in the 1980s and the fear of nuclear war was, was sort of always with us. That went away for a bit and now it's come back. So I think in retrospect, the pandemic marked the end of a period of stability in quite a lot of ways, which has definitely come to an end. And it's not just that economic volatility is back. Inflation sticker shock is hitting millions of Americans hard. Inflation is back, stagflation, all these words that people have not used since you know the 1970s and the 1980s. And also that great power conflict and worries about nuclear war and that kind of thing is back. Bringing back Cold War memories. For it's also that on top of that, we now have things like climate change to worry about. Weather chaos around the world. We have extreme weather and so on. So there are an awful lot of sources of uncertainty and instability. And I think that's why the world feels really unpredictable right now, because it is. You mentioned the major destabilizing action this year was the war in Ukraine. How do you predict or think about 
the effects will feel from that war now that it's heading into its second year. Yeah, so I, th- I think there's the sort of immediate answer about what happens on the ground in Ukraine itself. And we think it's looking increasingly like stalemate there now. It's very difficult for either side to make much progress. It's a war of attrition. It's a war of logistics and ha- what, who, who runs out of supplies first and, and that kind of thing, which does favour Ukraine, obviously, because it has the, the production capacity of the West behind it. And so we think that means that there's probably going to be some Ukrainian advances during 2023, but we don't expect there to be an end to the conflict. And the main reason we don't is that I think Putin at this point wants to slow things down and freeze things as much as possible, because he's hoping that the external environment, some change outside Ukraine itself will come to his aid. That could be that support for Ukraine in Europe or in America starts to falter. So that's the sort of position on the ground in in Ukraine. And then there's the kind of broader implication. And of course, this is changing the security calculation for, for everyone all around the world. It's replumbed the energy supply system, and that's changing energy prices, but it's also replumbed the system of global alliances. And then the big area that people are looking at is Taiwan and what this means for China. So yes, this raises questions in all sorts of ways all around the world. It's not just a kind of regional conflict in Europe. You mentioned the impact of this war on global economies. And something that seems to be on a lot of people's minds, I keep hearing about it, is a global recession, which I think feels inevitable to some people. It depends. Well, so a global recession is defined in a rather different way. So yeah, we do think there are going to be recessions in much of the world. So the I think the prediction is about a third of the world is going to go through recession next year. So we think, yes, there'll probably be a short but brief, not very deep recession in the US. And there'll be a deeper one in Europe because... The US has this sort of post-pandemic inflation hangover. And in Europe, we have that, but we also have the the fact that we're trying to wean ourselves off Russian gas. And then in Britain, we have both of those problems, plus we have the hangover after effects of Brexit, where we essentially cut ourselves off in many ways from our biggest trading partners. But actually, globally, there are parts of the world that are doing well out of this. So exporters of, of food, exporters of hydrocarbons are benefiting from higher prices, for example. So it's a very, very mixed picture. And when it comes to a global recession, that's actually defined in a different way, which is whether the GDP per capita globally goes down. So that's if you look at all the people in the world and you divide a global GDP between all of them, does that go down? And that depends both on the GDP growth and also on the population growth. So we may get technically a global recession. But my point is that on the ground, it's going to feel really terrible in some places and actually not so bad in others. And what kind of silver linings are you seeing even out of some of that bad news, I'm thinking about a forced rethinking of where we get our energy from and a faster switch to cleaner energy. Yeah, no, that, I think that's the big one. I think that's the big one. So the head of the International Energy Agency has said that the war in Ukraine is a historical turning point in, in the history of energy and that it's going to accelerate the transition to clean energy. And I think that's absolutely true because it gives countries a reason to adopt renewable energy which has got nothing to do with climate change. This is most visible in Europe because obviously Europe was most dependent on Russian gas. And so many European countries have raised their targets for how much of their electricity they want to get from renewable sources by 2030. 
and then just you know individuals are saying well i'm going to buy an electric car <laughs> i don't want to be paying high prices at the at the pump or i'm going to look at you know look at my heating bills i'm going to spring for a heat pump and it's going to be expensive but there are lots of incentives i mean you know the inflation reduction act in america very misleadingly named because it's actually a climate change act it absolutely throws money at renewable technology which is exactly the right thing to do but I think this is a high class problem to have when you've got big economies arguing about the extent of their green energy subsidies. I'll take that. That's fantastic because that means that we're moving in the right direction. Something else that was on my mind just while I was reading your issue, but something I've just been thinking about a lot this year is the state of women's rights and 2022 seemed to be a year of major backsliding from the US to Afghanistan and Iran I'm curious if you think we'll see more of that in the coming year or if 2023 will really be a year of women rising up and voicing their opposition in a stronger way. But I think I think that's the latter. I think it's exactly what we're seeing already. So we saw in the midterms that a lot of women were motivated to vote because of the Supreme Court ruling on Roe versus Wade. <laughs> That's very, very clear. Similarly, the Iranian, I won't quite call it a revolution because it hasn't got to the point where it's brought down the government, but there's a good chance it will. That's being led by women, absolutely. And then one of the things we cover in the edition is the state of women's rights in China. And surprisingly, this is an area where the government sort of, it allows a certain amount of, of dissent and protest because it doesn't think it's an existential threat to the government. And so that has meant that there has been quite a vocal women's rights movement emerging in China. And in fact, the government has just changed the law to enhance women's rights. But I thought that was a very interesting development that you may not be able to make progress in other areas politically within the Chinese political system. But actually, women's rights is something that has moved up the agenda. So I think actually, we are going to hear more about this. And there's signs that this is making a real difference. So in that sense, it's a positive sign. So interesting. I want to end. I know that The Economist, your head issue always gives people a little dictionary of what to kind of keep in mind. Three years ago, I remember learning what mRNA meant and super spreader. Could you tell me three or four words that you think our audience needs to know to prepare themselves for the new year so we can all add it to our mental dictionaries? So we actually had Twat City, which is what Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday working has been called in, in some places. And another one that relates to changes in the workplace is productivity paranoia. So this is the disconnect between what workers think about remote working and what managers think. And there was this big survey done by Microsoft of like tens of thousands of workers in, in about 20 countries. And it found that 87% of workers who work remotely reckon they are just as productive or more productive, but only about 10% of managers agreed. And so there, this is a sort of recipe for distrust because the managers worry that the workers aren't working and the workers worry that the managers think they aren't working. And that's a problem. And then I suppose I should choose, uh, I should choose one more. Let me just get the list. The one I probably have the most sort of enthusiasm for is pass keys. And pass keys are a new technology that are intended to replace passwords. You know, people have tried to get rid of passwords in the past, but this technology is supported by Apple, Google and Microsoft and essentially just happens on its own. If you've got the latest version of the software on your phone and your watch and all your other devices, it just works. But it means that your password can't be guessed, forgotten or stolen which I think would be very good for improving security of online transactions because it means phishing attacks basically can't work anymore. 
But what I'm particularly keen on as a Gen Xer is that I basically have to do tech support for my parents' generation, for my parents and for my parents' friends. You know, I'm the person that they call when they have these problems. I'm hoping that that will make life much less confusing for that generation. Okay, 2023 is the year of passkeys and productivity paranoia. You heard it here first. Tom, thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's January, which means it's New Year's resolution season. What's your New Year resolution? To get better at math. Hey, Rach, maybe your resolution should be to um gossip less. Lose weight and be healthier. Every year, my New Year's resolution is to touch a 10-foot basketball rim. Get my shit together. Clearly, everyone has different goals for the year. But there's one resolution pretty much all of us can get behind that you might not have thought about. You know what? I am going to be happy this year. I am going to make myself happy. Ross actually has a point there. It turns out Harvard researchers have studied how to live a happier life for over 80 years. And in the longest study ever done on the subject, they found that happiness doesn't lie in eating more vegetables or making more money. It's actually all got to do with the strength of our relationships. So today, we're taking a page out of Ross's book and exploring how we can strengthen our relationships in order to live a happier life in 2023 and beyond. To help us out, we called up an expert. My name's Dr. Marissa G. Franco. I'm a psychologist and a professor at the University of Maryland, and I wrote the book Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. According to Dr. Franco, the reason we even talk about relationships and happiness in the same sentence is because strong relationships actually affect us physically. When we connect with people, we release this hormone called oxytocin. And funny enough, oxytocin is also considered the fountain of youth which is why how socially connected we are determines how long we live, even more so than our diet or how much we exercise. It also decreases things like cortisol, which are stress hormones. And we also know that our social connections are one of the biggest predictors of our mental health and well-being. And so it's part of our hardware as humans, just like we need food, we need oxygen, we need water, we need social connection to function well. And we're not just talking about the relationship you have with a significant other or a best friend. We actually need to be focused on strengthening and starting relationships of all kinds. So if you're thinking about chatting it up with your barista, your yoga instructor, or the stranger next to you on the plane, do it. There are a ton of benefits. There is research that finds that we tend to underestimate how much it will impact our happiness. And we tend to think that we will enjoy being alone and not talking to someone more. But in fact, when people are told to actually engage and they're compared to the people that were alone, the people that were told to engage, like with the commuter on the train, for example, they're actually happier. And they also underestimated how happy they would be from that connection. Even a short chat with people that you don't know that well can boost your happiness and sense of well-being. Because we're social creatures, other humans play a huge role in us regulating our own emotions. Okay, now that we know strong relationships equal happier lives, let's walk through some simple tips to improve our relationships with our acquaintances, 
friends, family members, and romantic partners. Let's start with those acquaintances in our lives, like our coworkers or people we meet at the gym. Dr. Franco's first challenge is to try something called repotting. Repotting means you vary the setting in which you interact. So if you're an acquaintance and let's say I've seen you at my running club and you've seen cool, can we now hang out outside the running club? Or if I like you at work, can we go to a happy hour outside of the workplace? So you're going to have to initiate and ask the person to meet up in a setting that's distinct from where you typically interact with them. As for how we can strengthen our friendships, Dr. Franco says, try being a more active listener this year. One thing I've been thinking about is like to become a more attuned conversationalist. When people are sharing something with you, you often think about what is this trigger in myself, right? So someone's like, oh, I bought a new car. And you're like, oh, yeah, I was thinking about buying a new car. But instead to think about what is that person trying to convey to you? Like maybe they're trying to convey happiness or excitement or their pride. And so responding to what they're trying to convey instead of what their words triggering you would look like, wow, that's so exciting. You bought a new car. Tell me more about it. So it's just when we take our communication style and make it more person-centered on the other person and what they're sharing. Another thing you could try is penciling in time on your calendar to talk with a friend. And no, we don't mean texting, let's catch up, and never actually catching up. Set aside actual time and do it. Even a call as short as 10 minutes can bring you closer to a friend. And after you make that first call, try committing to one catch up with a friend every week for the rest of the month. And let us know how it goes. Now, let's talk about some of the deeper, but sometimes trickier relationships to navigate, like the ones we have with our family members. We kind of tend to put our relationships in a box, like we treat family like this and friends like this and romantic partnerships like this. But what would it look like if we took the relationship wherein we are our most quality selves and tried to take that higher standard and apply it to all of our relationships? So if we're our most quality self around a friend, can we hold ourselves to that same standard around family? So for example, instead of getting annoyed or ignoring a family member when they ask you a personal question, think about how you'd respond to your friend or partner. Maybe you don't give your family all the details, but sharing something is a way to deepen your connection. And we couldn't talk about relationships without addressing the elephant in the room, our romantic partners, who hopefully are tuning into this. When it comes to strengthening those relationships, Dr. Franco says, this month, challenge yourself to focus on how you react when things get tense. During conflict, spend a lot of time pausing. Our first reaction when someone tells us they have an issue is often defensiveness. And that's not our true reaction. It's guarding against feelings of guilt, feelings of shame. And instead of acknowledging that, we are getting defensive. Maybe your first instinct is to say, you don't appreciate me. I do this, this, and this. Or why don't you clean the kitchen? You never do this, this, and this. It's that reactivity that makes you want to just defend yourself. And instead, make sure you pause and choose your reaction instead of acting reactively in times of conflict. And no matter what kind of relationship you're trying to strengthen, remember this one piece of advice. I like to tell people who are trying to connect with people to assume people like you. When you assume people like you, research finds that it actually makes you warmer and more kind. 
versus when you assume rejection, you become cold and withdrawn and you actually reject people. So just remind yourself if the situation's ambiguous and you don't know, start with assuming that they like you. Strengthening relationships is a great resolution to start with because it can actually help you achieve all those other things on your list that you want to do this year. I mean, having a friend to try to reach a goal with makes you more likely to reach that goal. People that are more connected at work are more productive, less likely to leave their job, more fulfilled. So I do think it's the foundation through which we might reach a lot of our other goals. And so I think it is such a worthy goal to focus on building deeper connections in 2023. To learn more about the link between happiness and relationships, check out our show notes. Thanks for listening to Skim This. This podcast was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our producer, Will Livingston, and our associate producer, Blake Lou Merwin. We had additional help this week from Alicia Key. This episode was engineered by Ellie McAfee-Hahn and Andrew Calloway, and the Skim's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. Skim This will be back in your feed again next week. Until then, check out the Skim's other podcast, It's called 9 to 5-ish, and it's where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. You can find it wherever you're already listening to us.